Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in tonight on this Wednesday class of the CMI School of Christ. And uh, it's a pleasure to be able to share with you and hope that uh, this recording, this video finds you well wherever you are. Today, what I want to do, uh, we have been in a, a little study uh, somewhat away from Romans, but we went back to Romans the last time, I believe. But we have been in a study on the Beatitudes or the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And with that, we have been talking about the the deliverance that Jesus is proposing to the Jews or to those who are joined to him to hear him speak as the setting, of course, as we've talked about the setting being the new covenant Sinai or the place, the mountain where he would uh, declare himself to be the law of life instead of just another man giving another external law, which is unfortunately how most of the church world has defined and, and, and interpreted the Sermon on the Mount, another, even a more stricter external law than that, uh, than the Mosaic law. And that's unfortunate that it has been used that way, but it has. So what can you do except present, present the gospel and present the truth of what is being said in that context and every other context so that maybe someone by the help of the spirit of God, their eyes would be open to understand that this is a testimony of Jesus. And that when Jesus comes on the scene, he's offering to these people, the reality that God had promised from the very beginning, uh, the beginning of Israel as a nation, uh, basically the beginning of his creation when he offered to men, and this is part of what we'll talk about when he offered to Adam a life outside of himself, that was the tree of life. Cause what, what we're going to do today is talk about really what he came to do, what he came to offer the salvation of a soul, which is also the giving to the soul of every promise in its, in its amen and yay state its completeness, its, its totality. And to do that, I think and we probably should have done this first. This is how I'm doing it with a group in Uganda that I'm dealing with, uh, regularly. This should have probably been the foundation, uh, lesson that we use a couple of these, these two lessons that basically I'm going to try to condense into one, but maybe it should have been the foundation to lay this groundwork for an understanding with regard to the, to the salvation of the soul, because it lays a groundwork for observing the true makeup and design of the soul, the nature of the soul as it exists. And when I talk about a soul, I mean, man created of God, how he was created, how the soul of man, which is, you know, man is a living soul, how the soul of man is created by God. And it's, it's made very plain, I think, and simple in many different 
places, and we'll cover some of those today, especially in a lot of the uh, metaphors and analogies that, that is used or that are used in the scripture to describe the relationship between the soul and another party. But again, this was God's intention, and this is what God was offering to Israel um, and really to all men, because it wasn't a just it wasn't just about Israel. The whole thing was the law uh, showed that all men, whether Jew or Gentile, were under sin and needed to be saved, needed deliverance, needed to be rescued from the tyranny of a of a governmental authority and uh, rule that kept it under the bondage of death and sin and corruptibility. The thing that God offered in the very, and again, like I said, this was his intention when he, when he created Israel as a people, as a nation. Uh, but this was also his beginning when he created the whole creation in the midst of his creation, his intention was this. And we see it. He offered to Adam a tree of life and said, you can partake of that anytime at all times. You can eat of this tree as much as you will. It's not off limits. It is not held back or withheld from you. So eat of this tree. And that, of course, was the tree of life. But then he forbade, he forbade them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, of course, we know what happened. The serpent came in and, and convinced them that that was the way to go. And when they saw the tree, they saw they, they, their, their perspective was that the tree was good and that it was able to make them wise, to make them, as the, the serpent described, make them like God and to edify them as individuals. How can that be bad? Because that was not God's intent. God's intention was for not, not for man to have the ability to edify himself or for man to be independently uh, a partaker of anything of, of divine substance and divine essence so that we could call it ours. His intention was for man to freely and without limit, partake of a life that was not of himself, a life outside of himself, a life of another source, so that he could have life. And we'll, we'll see where it's said that, that that's the only way. To have life, you have to have life by partaking of another source, another life, another's life and all of the beauty and riches and glories of that life. But there you see something of the design of the soul and the salvation that God had always intended for the soul. So that's what we want to talk about some today. And I want to do it in the context of sovereignty and see that the, the soul was always intended of God as designed of God to be under the sovereign rule of another man. It was never to have an active part 
of production achievement. It was always a, it was, it was, the soul is created to be a passive entity that is dependent upon the, the power, the activity, and the work of another for anything to be the soul's portion, the soul's, uh, I could say possession, but we'll see that that's not really a good term. So the soul doesn't exist as an active or a productive entity. It's always, again, as created, always under the dominion or the power of another. And it's, it's under the rule of the one to whom it was joined by birth. This is why Jesus was plain when he said in John chapter 3, that and and again we're going to talk about the sovereignty of a king over his realm of or his place of dominion that unless a man is born again he cannot enter the kingdom or cannot see the kingdom of god why are the two connected because it is the birthing it's a new birth it's when another seed comes and takes its place in the soul and now becomes the governing nature of the soul that we come under the king or under the rule, which is, we could say, he cannot enter the reign because that's what the word kingdom means, the reign of Christ. So being born of the spirit, is to be brought under the reign or the rule or the kingship of Christ. Now, I know people would like to make that a progressive thing and say you're not yet under the rule until there's some external proof to say you're under the rule. But here's the problem with that. That is to say that we are always held under the power of two separate entities. We are still slipping ever so slightly out of the power from under the rule of the man of sin or the kingdom of sin and death, the kingdom of darkness, as Paul says in the Colossians, and we are slowly but surely moving toward the rulership of Christ, the son of the love of God. Now, that's that you may, you may hold to that idea, uh, but that's not a scriptural idea. In fact, Colossians plainly says that we were translated out of the kingdom of darkness through being, and this is the true interpretation and, and reading of it, through being translated into the kingdom of the dear son, meaning when the one happened, the other was the result. We're going to see that also in the in the metaphor of a slave and a servant is used in the scripture as well. Now, uh, the soul then is always to be a servant, to be a slave of a stronger party. So the issue is not, is the soul a servant or is the soul in a state of servitude because that's a given. We'll talk about it. That's a given. The question is, are you a slave or a servant of death and sin or of life and righteousness? That's the question. It's not about, are you a servant? 
It's are you a servant of life or death? Because that's the only two options. There's no gray area. There's no middle ground. You're either a servant of sin or you're a servant of righteousness. And, and Paul says that plainly, and uh, we'll see that in a moment. In fact, let me, um, I have the monitor over here where I'm looking at the recording here. I want to share a, um, a screen with you and show you a diagram. And those of you watching, I hope you can see that. But this is a diagram that I made with regard to this particular um, lesson and this particular idea or thought, because I want us to see the immediacy of it. I want us to understand that the work of God that brings a soul from life, from death to life is a all as a comprehensive work that is immediate. So Romans 6.18 says it, and you'll see over the circles here, and, and what I have here is the soul. That's why it's both circles. But it's a soul, but it's the same soul, but in, in entirely different conditions. First, on, on, the, on your left, there is a soul under the headship. And again, that's a, a scriptural um, analogy that is used. You can go to Romans 7, and we probably will at some point in time. But Romans 7 talks about the headship, basically. Uh, Colossians talks about the headship of Christ. Uh, Romans 5 talks about basically the headship of Christ and the governing rule of a kingdom who is Christ or king who is Christ or Adam. But under the first circle here shows that that soul is now under the government of Adam. And above that, I have basically uh, Romans 6.20, which says, for when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. Now listen to that phrase. That's an important phrase. We need to, to just, for a moment, just consider the, the gravity of that statement and the immediacy of that statement. He doesn't say, as long as you were servants of sin, you were not fully servants of righteousness. No, just the opposite. He's saying, if you were a servant of sin, the soul cannot be a servant to both things, cannot be a divided it cannot be divided in loyalty or divided in subservience because it does not determine who it who governs it what does birth the seed a work of god determines it that's why you must be born again so that the kingdom the reign the rule of another can come in and up uh, over, overrule and override and overcome the power of the previous kingdom of sin and death or the rule of sin, death, darkness, corruption, all the ways that it's, that it's stated in the scripture. 
So there's the immediacy of it. As long as you're a servant of sin, you are free. That means entirely free from and out of the reach of righteousness. But conversely, before that, he talks on the positive side in Romans 6, 18, and that's over the second circle, which is the soul under the rule and headship of Christ. That went, but now being made free, because he's talking to believers. Notice in, in verse 20, he says, when you were the servants of sin. I want you to catch these words because these things are important, especially when we have a, a church system of Christianity that is trying to teach people that they are still sinners, even though they're in Christ. They're still in the flesh, even though they're in Christ. And the whole letter to the Romans knocks all of that out of the way and, and, and takes it away as an argument. So he uses a past tense here. When you were the slaves of sin, then you were free, liberated from, out of the reach of righteousness. Because you're ruled by one thing. You are partaking and participating in a relationship with one source. And you cannot be divided to, take, uh, to partake of two mutual, mutually opposing sources. Soul can't do that. It's not what it's created for. So in Romans 6, he, he, he turns that over and says, but being then made free from sin, no longer slaves to it, but now made free from sin. How did that happen? Through, uh, through the work of the cross, the death, burial, and the resurrection, where we become dead to sin and alive unto God through Christ. If you want to go into Romans chapter 8 and see that, you see, uh, Romans chapter 7 shows you very plainly. You cannot have two opposing things equally satisfied at the same time. A man trying to live perfectly by a law that declares perfection cannot fulfill that when he is at the same simultaneously ruled internally by the king or rule or dominion or government or law of sin and death. They are two mutually opposing different things. So what was the answer in Romans 7? A deliverance, a salvation to be made free to be dead to sin and made free by what? The law of the spirit of life. Another life coming in, this law, the life of the spirit of Christ coming in and now governing from within as another law. Not a law that demands, but a law that bestows everything that is demanded. Because he's living in you as that life, as that righteousness fulfilled. That's the answer to this. That's the only answer to this. It's not try harder, be better, try your best to not be like Adam, but try your best to be like Christ. Both of those things are an impossibility, and that's why salvation is necessary, not betterment. Salvation is a total deliverance from one thing and to be brought under the rule of another thing. 
So you see here, enslaved to righteousness, completely free from sin. Again, the immediacy of that statement is so important for us to understand. So here on the left side, you have Adam, the soul now under the rule and headship sovereignty. That means something that is not uprooted. That's something that's not over overridden by the whims of that which is subject to that power, but that power governs and rules and and everything contrary, if any act contrary to the rule is, is nullified because the rule from within is the, is what makes the thing is what actually seals the deal. <laughs> say it that way, lack of a better way of saying it that come to my mind. So here's this soul under the headship of Adam, under the headship, under rule, therefore, of sin, death, and corruption. On the other side, through the work of the cross, again, that's what being born again brings your soul into a true internal association with the perfect and finished work of the cross, death, burial, and resurrection, where you become dead to the thing that held you, and now you are alive unto God through being found in another man that he has raised up and glorified his beloved son. You are now under that rule. You're under the rule of another because the soul cannot be an independent entity. That's not how it was designed. The soul was never be to be free. The soul was to be free in Christ. There's a difference and that's real freedom. The other just says, hey, I'm free to do whatever I want. The other says, I'm free from the kingdom of death and sin because now I am under the rule of life and righteousness. He governs me from within and he is made unto. And see, even that phrase that Christ is made unto us, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That being said, is the way of saying the soul is not active in this thing. The soul is a partaker. God had to bring you into Christ, and in so doing, he made Christ to be unto you all spiritual things because the soul has no active part of itself. There's no activity, no productivity in the soul. It has to be acted upon and under the rule of a stronger party because God designed the soul to be that way because his ultimate aim and intention for the soul of man, thus man himself, was to finally come under the condition, not I, but Christ. To be found in him having nothing of my own, nothing I produced, nothing I did, nothing I am, but who he is made unto me. Therefore, no man can glory except in the Lord, who is now the source from which he receives all spiritual sustenance and the substance of all divine things. In fact, when, when Paul is in Philippians 3, when you read that, when he says, what was gained to me? Again, if you go back to Romans 7, you see that struggle in another light. But he says that those things, the law, being circumcised, being, you know, uh, uh, 
of Israel, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, touching the righteousness in the law, blameless, those things were gain to him. In fact, he assumed that through those particular things, he had achieved, produced righteousness and eternal life and was therein justified in the sight of God because of his doings, what he had done, what he had produced. But then he came to realize those things were not gain at all because the soul cannot gain anything. The soul is not created to be an achiever or a producer. The soul is created to be a partaker. And the soul is a partaker, whether we realize it or not. And all of the Christian ideas that uh, tell you otherwise, all of the Christian concepts and ideas that tell you that the Christian life is one of achieving righteousness or Christ-likeness or good or whatever, is telling you a lie. The soul is one that has to be bestowed upon. And in, in Romans, the word is imputed. It has to be imputed because the, the thing that it God's imputing it to has nothing, is insufficient. You could say non-sufficient funds are found in me. Therefore, he who has all things <coughs> and is all things has to bestow to the soul. Now, here's the thing. When I say has nothing, that can be construed wrongly. And let me clarify. The soul is never empty. The soul is never empty. Now, the soul can be empty of the thing it's after. But the soul can never be empty because the soul is either in a state of fullness as to sin and death, or the soul is filled with life and righteousness. That's why Paul, knowing the state of these people that they are in Christ, he can say, you are complete. Because he knows that if they are in Christ and Christ is in them and they've come to him who was the hope of glory, that they are therefore complete because God does not offer things in drips and pieces and parts. The testimony of him was in pieces and parts necessarily. But the person of Christ given to the soul, soul imputed to the soul, bestowed as a gift to the soul is not in pieces, parts, and fragments. The soul becomes the, in, the, inhabit, the habitation of the fullness of Christ and begins to partake of the source that he is. That's, that's again, not I, but Christ. That is not of us, of God and not of us. And these are realities that are used throughout the scripture. And if we sat for a moment and considered the implications of them and the ramifications of them, we would see that they're describing not only the completeness of Christ, but the nature of the soul that is under his sovereignty. So if you look at one aspect of salvation, there is headship, and we, and, and we may talk about that in another class. But here's the thing. If you go to Romans 7 and you see the headship that was exercised over the wife, and I think he's speaking there, of course, of the soul, 
being under the law, not just of Moses, but the law of Adam, being free from that husband. And here's, here's what I'm saying. The soul can never be free from a headship. It just depends on who's the head to determine either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness or free from sin. When he talks about being free from the husband, because the husband is dead, he said, now you are dead to the first husband so that you may be married to another. You notice what he doesn't say? You have been freed from that first husband so that you can live your life and be ready to go. There's a, you know, colloquialism, I guess you could say in, in the world, when a man or a wife gets divorced, they'll say I'm single and ready to mingle. The soul is not designed to be single and ready to mingle. The soul is designed to be under the headship of one man or another, Adam or Christ, because the soul has to be partaker of a source, partaker of another's substance. Therefore, there's the immediacy of it. You're dead to this, this, you're dead to this man because he's dead so that you can be married to another like that. It's, it's not so that you can just be an independent soul living your life and having God help you out. It's so that you can now be brought into a union and be joined to another man and bear the fruit of that man. And the fruit of that man is an automatic thing. In fact, in the Romans 7, it is a past tense, bearing fruit unto God. In Romans 7, being married to the second man, you bear fruit. That's a, that's a past tense thing, not a future thing. So I want to focus on another aspect of this uh, descriptor that is used to illustrate how the soul is under another's power perpetually necessarily designed of God. And I want to read some verses and you'll notice in the verses that we're going to read how Paul uses governmental and kingdom language to convey the nature of both Adam and Christ's governing power in the soul of man. But let me share this one more time with you and just show you this diagram once more and read something. I want to read what's in this diagram. On the cross, you'll see the cross dealt a final and eternal blow to the man and his government that held us. Now, let me read that. This is from Romans 7, verse 5 and 6. But when we were in the flesh, listen to the, to the language of the scripture. When we were were in the flesh. Most people still have Christians in the flesh. He's talking in the flesh means under the rule and headship and sovereignty of Adam under the first husband. When you were the motions of sins, which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now, now we are delivered from the law and we're not just talking about the law of Moses. We're talking, I think, more specifically about the, the law of the husband. 
both are true. We are free from both, but we can't be free from the law of Moses until we are free from the internal law of the husband, which was the law of sin and death that Paul talks about in Romans 7. Because it's that internal change from death to life, from the rule of Adam to the rule of Christ, that nullifies the necessity of the law of Moses to be over us because then I am dead to the sin that the law of Moses condemned. And I am a partaker of a life that there is no law to condemn. That internal change from the rule or the headship of one man to another had to necessarily happen first. Basically, it happens at the same time. But that change from death to life or from being in the flesh to in the spirit or to be dead to the first man and his law, which was sin and death in my members, that had to happen so that my soul was no longer bound to that corrupt source. And because the soul was now joined to the incorruptible source of Christ, our life, the law had no more power. The law of Moses had no more power, had no more need to condemn my soul or me as a soul. Because now my soul, I am a partaker, a, a receiver of the life of another man over whom the law has no power. You see that? So that's what had to happen. But look at what he says. Verse six, now we're delivered from the law that being dead to the law, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit. You see that where we were held, held. That's a big word. We were held. We were in the grips of and under the bondage of it. Now we're dead to it so that we should serve not as one whose service is nullified by the fact that he is ruled internally by something that nullifies the, the, the exercise of service under God. That makes it where every time I try to do good, evil is present. But now we serve in the newness of spirit. What's serving in the newness of spirit? Is that about works that we do and efforts that we perform? No, it's serving in newness of spirit is serving in the, un, serving in the reality. It is not I, but Christ. Serving it as a soul governed by the rule of righteousness himself. Because anything other than that is to serve in the oldness of letter. And I'm not, and listen to me, I'm not saying that service comes when we understand that we are in the spirit. I'm saying that service comes because we are in the spirit. Hear me now. Because that service is not rendered by us, but is rendered in us by the presence of the spirit in, in Romans eight, he said, he talks about this service, a righteousness of the law fulfilled 
in us, done, completed, accomplished in us. There's the service of newness of spirit. It is a service of a fulfilled salvation. It's the serving in a, in a complete and entire capacity, not serving to get or serving to achieve, but serving in the completeness of what has been achieved by the presence of Christ within us. So let's read these other uh, phrases and get into some of the uh, ideas or the concepts of the governmental rule of sovereignty of two men. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. Just as through the disobedience, now I think this is from um, the uh, Kenneth Weiss translation, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were constituted sinners. Listen to these words because these words prove to us the passivity of man and the active nature of God and his work or Adam and his rule. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were constituted. That word constituted means made. Made to be. Because he made them to be that. By his disobedience. They were, that's the thing. They were acted upon. They didn't act in a way that made this their condition. They were acted upon by the power of another. They were born of a particular seed. That's all they had to do was be born. And from that moment on, the, the soul of man was acted upon by a stronger party. Making man the soul sinner constituted as such thus also through the obedience of the one capitalized one the many are constituted righteousness you see it's the same the soul has to be constituted as either a sinner or righteousness man cannot achieve either one of these beliefs right it's not hard really for us to think man sucks so he can't be righteous but it's very difficult for us to think constituted a sinner too means man couldn't even achieve that because i'm telling you just as righteousness and i think we fall short in understanding this but, but just as right was ability because we don't even stand magnitude we the truth of right is we say it's Christ, but do we understand the magnitude of that statement and how unfamiliar and other that really is something unfamiliar, something we can't even identify. We can't even fathom the concept of righteousness is so above us. It's so other than us. The same is true of, of sin. 
The same is true of sin. It is so much bigger than we think because it is not isolated to actions that we point to and say that's sin. It is isolated to a man, just like righteousness is. And that man does not then give it over to us and say, you are now the embodiment of sin. No, that man rules as the embodiment of sin in us, causing the soul that he rules to be constituted as a sinner because he's in it. Meaning the soul doesn't become sin. The soul is a partaker of the sin that, that Adam is. Let me uh, go back to the diagram for a second, because there's something written on it that I want to read to you. At the bottom of the diagram, it says, we must realize that the soul has a passive participation in both conditions, meaning the soul did nothing to constitute either state, but was acted upon and governed by the one to which it was joined. The soul has no active role in the making or keeping within the confines of these states of enslavement or marriage. But you'll see in both graphics that the absoluteness of a condition brought into the soul through the abiding presence of another. The graphics present the soul's participation or the reception of the condition and state, listen to this, of the man to whom it is joined in a full, complete, and absolute sense. You hear that? Meaning righteousness is not something Rabin has because Rabin achieved it or warranted it or was given it. The soul that has righteousness as its state is actually a is in a state of participation in the condition and the state of the man to whom it is joined, meaning it is not my righteousness. It's the righteousness of him because I'm found in him not having a righteousness. I don't even have his righteousness. He is made unto me righteousness. So my soul stands in the certainty of being joined to that source and lives in the certainty and the assurance and the anchoring power of him being made to it what it cannot have of its own volition and accord. It takes the act out brings it because the way it was died. So through the obedience of the one, the many will be constituted right more inside that the church in my or may abound. The sin bounded. Listen to that article. The sin abound. The grace superabounded with more added to that in order that just, and here's the, here's the uh, language that just as the aforementioned sin reigned as King in the sphere of death. Also the aforementioned grace might reign as King through righteousness in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
What a statement. Paul in this letter alone uses all of these different metaphors. Rule of a king. And I think the rule of a king, not just a slave and a servant and a husband and a wife, but the rule of a king just brings it up to a whole new level. And I think opens us, opens up for us an entirely new or maybe a clearer perspective or consideration. Not new as to the subject, but as to the nature of the union that's being addressed in these verses. What does it mean to be under the reign of a king, the rule and sovereignty of a king? Because most Christians don't really think of our salvation as it currently is in Christ Jesus in the light. They don't consider it in the light of the reigning or rule of a sovereign king. The majority of Christians still anticipate a time in the future when Jesus will be coronated king and he'll rule. But the existence of a believer, the entire life of a believer, is one that is being subject to the kingship and rule of one man, Christ himself. So, um, when we use the term in Christ Jesus, and we've used that forever, all of us, but we've said it's a relationship of rest, and that is absolutely true. But when you say in Christ Jesus, let's also think of it this way. In Christ speaks, that phrase speaks of the realm or the sphere of his rule, of his sovereignty, where he determines and measures and de defines all things. So to be in Christ is to be in the realm or sphere in which he measures and defines all things in himself, as himself. Righteousness in the realm of in Christ is not me, but him. He measures it totally. And, you know, some will agree with me that salvation comes fully at the very beginning of being born again, but we assume that the keeping and the sustaining of that state of being born again, being saved, is in our hands. I mean, we may not be told that in certain terms, but we're at least told in some terms that we are to some degree, to some percentage, responsible for sustaining our souls in, the, in, in God, in the sight of God. But if we just think about that, take a moment, calm down, Think about that statement and just realize how absurd, how hopeless of a proposal that really is. I mean, we're talking about a salvation of a soul, a new creation in Christ. We're, we are those who have been, again, necessarily governed by the rule and power of the one who is enthroned by his father. So to begin, we have to examine a couple of the terms that are used here. Paul speaks of sin abounding in the sphere of death. And, you know, we've covered, we've covered that before, how the headship of Adam is absolute and secured the soul in a state of sin and death. It's raining, I'm sorry, maybe loud. 
but the rule, the headship of Adam secured the soul, anchored it really in us in a, in a complete entire state of sin, death, and corruption. But Paul uses the word abounded with reference to sin. And I think that gives us a clarity concerning our state in Adam, meaning the word there is pleonazo. And I've heard this term, especially, you know, singing worship songs and things like that. We'll talk about this word because it means to have more than enough to meet one's need or have even too much. And that's from the Young's literal uh, translation, to have more than enough to meet one's need, to have more than enough and have too much. That's the Greek, I'm sorry, the Greek English lexicon. I've heard that used in different ways when it talks about Christ, because we'll say, you know, he's more than enough. We'll sing songs. He's more than enough. But I've never really considered it in reference to sin. I think because we think sin is something we can stop by willpower. We can stop it and, and do more or not do it, do it or don't do it. Just stop doing it. No, we're talking about a rule here. We're talking about a rule that constituted a soul as a sinner, not the actions of men, but the rule of a man. So when we use it in reference to sin and say it means more to have more than enough to meet one's need, it demonstrates something. It demonstrates the real dominion and, and power that Adam had over the soul because to be a sinner to be constituted a sinner, to have the abounding of sin means that we as born of corruptible seed, not doing one thing, having never left our bed to do one work, born of that seed and ruled by that king, Adam, that rule provided, gave, and we'll read in a moment, the word inflicted is used as pertaining the king, kingdom of sin or the kingship of Adam. It was inflicted. So we had inflicted to us everything necessary to be sinners or to be dead in sin and trespasses. We had more than enough. We did not have to smoke a joint. We did not have to drink a beer. We did not have to say a word that that was a foul word. We didn't have to do one thing because the constitution and the, the infliction of sin to the soul under the rule of Adam gave that soul more than enough to meet the need to be dead in sin. You did not have to act one act, do one deed, say one word. That's how sovereign of a ruler Adam was over the soul. And you had no, you had no power. You had no choice. You were born and being born of that seed brought you under the rule and headship of that man and his sovereignty determined that you had more than enough at the very onset to be dead in sin and trespass, to be separate from God and corruption to rule from within.
And I mean, this clarifies the use of the same word earlier where it says that the law came in so that the offense might abound. And many have interpreted this to mean that the law came in to make, and, and it coming in made men sin more. It, it sparked a flame of passion in men to break the law in an even increased manner. But in the light of what we just said, the introduction, the implementation of the law merely exposed the fact that we had as just humans born under the headship of Adam, we had more than enough to be sinners. We were constituted and made to be sinners. We were in a not I, but Adam relationship and we didn't even understand it. But yet that, that rule was still so and of such that it was not determined and it's, it's, Efficacy was not determined by if we knew that we were under the rule of sin and death or not. We just thought we did bad things. No, we were joined to and partakers of a corrupt source or corrupt root. That's why the, van the branch and the vines is used as such a powerful uh, metaphor or analogy. So the law exposed the abounding nature of sin that was already consequently operating in those under Adam's kingship or rule. And the, you know, to me, it further explained by the use of the term offense. Again, the usual supposition is that Paul is referring to actions on the part of sinners, but he's actually pointing us back to the true source of the transgression or the offense. The true offense that the law openly displayed to be the malady of all mankind under the tyrannical rule of the man of disobedience. The offense of the man, one man. That's the offense that we had the consequence of. The word offense is singular there and actually has the definite article before the offense. And this means Paul is referencing a singular occurrence that bestows a present malignant effect to the soul under the consequence of that one occurrence. Now, I think that's been stated before. We are constituted sinners by the disobedience of one man. The law given of God spotlighted the internal and universally effectual consequences of the fall, thus showing that even absent of any activity on our part, we are yet subjects of a governing power that rules from within and binds us to the sphere of death, giving us only one hope of deliverance. That's salvation, deliverance, true rescue an escape. And that hope is that a greater and stronger kingdom would lay waste to the present power and free us forever from that tyranny once and for all. And that's exactly what was written to the Colossians to describe the transaction of salvation that secured for for, to the, for the believer, a participation in the inheritance with the saints in the light. Because he says, giving thanks to the Father 
who did make us meet for the participation of the inheritance of the saints in the light and did rescue us. This is uh, Young's literal out of the authority of the darkness and did translate us into the reign of the son of his love. A greater and more powerful kingdom has come and uprooted the previous stronghold of sin and death that held us from within. Now, uh, I want to read this again, verse 21 in the Weymouth translation, in order that, this is Romans 5, 21, and I'm out of time, in order that as sin hath exercised kingly sway in, here's the word, inflicting death, that's being acted upon by that power. He's exercising power, inflicting death. Hear that word. So grace too may exercise kingly sway in bestowing a righteousness which results in the life eternal. See, when Paul, again, describes the nature of grace wielding the kingly rule, he uses the word much more abounded, right? That's in verse 20. And the word is in some translations super, super abounded. What we read in the Weiss translation, it said uh, much more abounded or super abounded with more even added to that. And it's important that this super abounding, the word is written in the aorist or the past tense, meaning he's presenting a past occurrence that has present and effectual result. So the grace of God has complete and continuous rule over the soul of the born again believer. The rule of Christ is not progressively wrought. There's not a war taking place between two opposing governments, two viable enemies. That's how the Christian experience is presented. Usually, you know, we're always in a, at a war. We're always, uh, have this viable enemy that's over us and ruling us. And they're always fighting it. But the author S. way translation, I think nips that in the bud to quote Barney Fife by, uh, translating it this way, just as sin once wielded kingly power in inflicting death. So grace hence forth, hence forth wields kingly power in bestowing the righteousness issue, which issues in eternal life. See that word? He makes a matter of fact statement that he wants the reader to understand. I think a wonderful Greek scholar understanding the certainty and the matter of factness of the statement. He shows the certainty of this word and the certainty of the rule of this king, that it doesn't progressively become the power and kingship of grace. It's immediate. And that is what has freed you from the rule of sin. Because he uses the word henceforth. The word henceforth clarifies it perfectly because it means from this moment onward. 
Paul doesn't perpetuate a battle between two powers. He shows that the reign of grace in those who are born of God are was established and effectual from the moment of that transaction and perpetuates eternally as a settled matter through the abiding rule of our sovereign king, Christ himself. Now, I want to, um, well, this is important. Let's read this. And I may stop here because we can just continue this in our next time. To describe the kingly authority, and this is important, of sin, he uses the phrase inflicting death. But when relating the nature of grace's rule, he writes the grace wields kingly power, bestowing righteousness. There's a glaring difference. The rule of Christ is much more abounding in that it provides unto us completely what the other kingdom forfeited, forfeited completely from us. Romans 3 speaks of the infliction of death. And the corruption in Adam, as it is written, none righteous, no, not one, no matter how hard you try, how hard you, how, how, how devoted you are, not one breaks through this power, not one overcomes this infliction of death. But the point being made is very simple. The sovereign rule of Christ within has immediately brought us from no, not one to not I, but Christ. And they're both true. They're both true because the one says I was completely a subject and slave and under the governmental rule of death and corruption and sin. And it was not me, but sin that dwelled in me. Here, it is not I, but Christ in terms of righteousness and grace and salvation, sanctification, holiness, whatever. Not I, but Christ. See, that's the realization. That's the reality that hopefully we come to realize in the seeing of the king himself revealed in a soul. But that's the reality that leaves no room at all for boasting except in him. Because the nature of the soul being inactive, being non-productive, being idle, basically. And that's why you go back to where he gives a penny to each one that was called. He goes about and says, they were standing about idle. Why do you stand there idle? That means unfruitful. That means barren. That means useless, not able, not just lazy, not able. And he calls them into the vineyard. To not understand the sovereignty of Christ is to miss a very important thing, something we all struggle with, I believe, in Christianity. And that is the fact that something can change 
with regard to our state and our condition before a God who is holy and righteous. But when we assess the nature of salvation in the light of the rule of a king, a sovereign, sovereign, no equal, sovereign. That's, the, that's a very important word. The sovereign rule of a king, we have to understand that the subjects of that king, the subjects of that kingdom in no way influence the extent of his sovereignty or his power. There has never been one subject that determined anything with regard to the rule of the king. He did not change everything. He, the subjects of the king have no power to rescind the exercise of the king's authority. The king is not open or susceptible to the notions of his subjects, to the whims of his subjects. He doesn't, he does not give, let's say it this way. His rule does not necessitate our consent, nor is it uprooted by our non-consent. The nature of man who is upon the, the nature of the man who is upon the throne entirely determines the condition of the realm over which he rules. I hope we can see that with regard to our soul, because that's how God created the soul. We're going to see that in our next time together. Cause I um, have a lot more here to look at because we're going to go into the old Old Testament and see that typified. But I hope at least we've laid a foundation for this. And to me, this is important because it tells you why Matthew 5 can't be about here's, here's how you're supposed to do it. Here's how you're supposed to live. And if you don't, you're not blessed. You have no blessing in the kingdom. No. He's offering to them everything he promised because they had no power to get it or achieve it. They were all in bondage to another power. And he was coming as the king who would deliver them from that power and bestow to them what they were always hoping for. I think, what does he call them? They are slaves of hope or they are slaves in a state of hope. I'm telling you, as he does to them, your hope has come. The work is done. The king is on his throne. So we'll stop there. Thanks for, um, thanks for being on tonight and be a part of this class. So appreciate it. Let me, uh, once again, tell you that, uh, we're having a Bible conference in June. And let me get over here so I can maybe see it. 
I think it's the 21st to the 25th of June. I don't want to mess that up. 21st to the 25th, starting on Monday night. But again, Monday night's usually just a, a, a time of uh, fellowship and food and just kind of relaxing from your trip in. We'll have people coming in throughout. I hear some people already made their reservations to be here. So please uh, do what you can and be a part of this time together. We look forward. It's been so long since we've seen some of you. We look forward to being able to see your face and talk to you in person. So if you can, if there's any way, um, be here. We would love to have you and we will do whatever we can to make that possible as far as, um, you know, rooms and things like that. We will be sending out an email here in the next uh, few days to uh, give you some of the places around here. And again, like I said, there are uh, Airbnbs and things on the web that you can go to and look at. There's little apartments here in the town of Marshall that I live in that you could rent out. There's many places like that here. There's also a, um, a few miles uh, south of us in Clinton. There's some two uh, nice uh, motels that you can stay in. Uh, this is a small town. We don't have a whole lot of um, accommodations as far as that goes. We were hoping that we would have another this year, but I think the pandemic kind of stopped that from being built. Hopefully it'll come in the near future. But uh, if you're able to be here and we can do anything to help facilitate that, we will. So let us know. You can email me, ravenbird at gmail.com. You can email the uh, research center, CMIBRC at yahoo.com and uh even jw lumen brother lumen you can uh jw lumen at yahoo.com is his email and you can uh, get with either one of us or just um call and we would love to uh, find a way for to make it as easy as possible for you to be here during the conference again the 21st through the 25th of june and we look forward to seeing you all right guys Thanks for being a part of this tonight. Amen.